Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing osteoarthritis. Does race matter? Race and ethnicity have been studied for many years as it relates to osteoarthritis prevalence and healthcare delivery. There are a multitude of studies demonstrating important differences in the prevalence of disease, perceived disability, and reporting of symptoms. In addition to marked disparities in rates and outcomes from total joint replacement, and other aspects of health service utilization. Understanding these racial differences in prevalence is important in helping us to understand the pathophysiology of disease and the importance of different risk factors for different populations. In addition, racial differences in pain and function reporting are complex and involve impacts of socioeconomic factors, psychological impact, as well as differences in pain sensitivity. Minorities appear to have lower rates of health service utilization when it comes to total joint replacement and oftentimes worse outcomes. Why is that? As we think about improving the targeted delivery of healthcare and reducing disparities, understanding some of these differences is critically important. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to discuss this complicated area with a view to helping our understanding of these differences 
and ultimately promoting improvements in healthcare. We're joined by none other than Yuqing Zhang. And Professor Zhang is a Director of Epidemiological and Biostatistical Methods in Rheumatology at Mass General and a Professor in Residence in Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's a senior epidemiologist with expertise in study design and statistical analysis and has mentored both doctors and PhD trainees and junior faculty for over 30 years. And I had the pleasure of working with Yu Ching in Boston and playing alongside him and learning a lot from him uh, when I spent time in Boston. So welcome, Yu Ching, to the show. Thank you, David. Appreciate your invitation. Reminds me of some happy times when in Boston with Sumi in Boston University swimming pool. That's great fun. Yeah, they were good. They were good times. We, we, I wish I was still back there now. And hope, hopefully, you're still swimming from time to time. Yeah, I hope you come back. But I just cannot compete with you because your one lap is my ten laps. So. That's <laughs> <laughs> It's, a, it's all good. It's all about getting out there and being, being physically active and, and enjoying yeah. yourself. And yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to see you in the not too distant future, whether it be in Boston or some other jaunt around the world. But hopefully travel will be on the menu at some point in our distant future and we'll get a chance to catch up. So am I looking forward. Yeah. Now, usually as the first part of the show, I spend a little bit of time trying to get to know you a little bit better, both for myself, but also uh, particularly for the audience. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Five words are too many, David. I think three <laughs> words three words are enough to describe myself in terms of my job, although I do have uh, other hobbies besides work. First, I would say I'm an epidemiologist. My research work focuses on identifying risk factors for various rheumatic diseases, including osteoarthritis, and I hope these findings will provide empirical evidence to guide disease prevention and the treatment. That's the first word, I'm an epidemiologist. Second, I'm a professor in residence at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard School of Medicine. I have responsibility in teaching and mentoring graduate students postdoc fellows and the junior faculty. I really enjoy working with them. It makes me feel young and energetic. Third, I consider myself as a collaborator. I work with many different investigators around the world, provide my expertise in study design and state analysis approaches. I really enjoy collaboration. Working with other investigators, I also learn a lot. So, I think these three words describe myself. Yeah, and I think very accurate descriptions. And I, you know, honestly, I've had the privilege of uh, learning a lot from you. So obviously, I spent a lot of time with you in Boston immediately after finishing my PhD. And you're uh, one of the smartest people I know. And you're very generous with your time and your knowledge and your insights. And so I learned a lot. And now, obviously, Extending that further, we have the privilege of continuing to collaborate on a, on a number of different projects and looking forward to, to that continuing. Now, you, I guess you've told us a little bit about what you do, but do you want to expand, I guess, on what you do professionally on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, professionally, so basically every day nowadays, you know what we do. I actually working from home because of a COVID-19 epidemic. So mainly 
uh, help the investigators to, you know, uh, study design and the writing the manuscript, provide the guidance on statistical methods, and also, you know, writing manuscripts with uh, many investigators. So that's my main job. Every day, I have a lot of Zoom meetings and phone calls, but uh, I do enjoy this work, even though I stay at home, cannot see my friends, and cannot face-to-face -face discuss the questions they have. Yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're wonderful in the office environment, but I'm sure you do particularly well even on, uh, on Zoom, albeit uh, there is a little bit of Zoom fatigue going on, and I'm probably adding to that Zoom fatigue with this particular conversation. So when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Uh, in my spare time, I like to read. I read a lot of novels, both in Chinese and English. I also like to listen to music and have a cup of tea, especially during the weekend, and also play Sudoku. I don't know if you know Sudoku or not. We it's do. A, I think, I'm pretty sure we played together before. Oh, really? I, I keep playing for almost, I think, 20 years. Every day <laughs> in the morning, I go to the New York Times and just play the Sudoku for hard and then a medium. I, I, I don't look at the easy one because it's not a challenging. So that's my hobby. But most enjoyable moment is to play with my two grandchildren. It makes me very, very happy. So that's what I spend in my spare time. That sounds, that sounds truly wonderful. And uh, just a little side note, one of the teas that I currently drink, I think I picked up from you when we were on one of our trips to China, a tea called Oolong Tea. Um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's good yeah one. I love it. I yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the main reasons I wanted to chat to Yu Ching about this topic is we, um, particularly when I was in Boston, we spent a lot of time looking at comparative studies between different racial and ethnic groups around the world, in particular, the study that um, Yu Ching pretty much ran in Beijing, where uh, we did quite a lot of work together on that. And so there's a lot, of, a lot to learn from uh, racial differences about osteoarthritis. But Yu Ching, I'm just wondering if you could briefly summarize some of the racial differences in osteoarthritis prevalence. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the racial difference in disease prevalence. And before doing an OA, uh, uh, racial difference in OA prevalence, Many diseases have shown racial differences, such as cancer, you know, cardiovascular disease. So actually we borrowed a lot of methodology from those fields to the osteoarthritis study. To date, most studies compare the prevalence of osteoarthritis among different racial and ethnic groups were mostly conducted in developed countries, such as in the United States. For example, a lot of studies have shown that in the United States, knee osteoarthritis is much more common among African-Americans than that in Caucasians. And also African-Americans men also have a higher prevalence of hip osteoarthritis than Caucasians. But hip OA is not as common in women in African-Americans compared with the Caucasians women. Another interesting thing is that African-Americans were less likely to develop hand osteoarthritis than Caucasians. So this shows that prevalence OA 
not only differ between racial groups, but also varies by the joint groups. And the difference probably is common in the knee, but less common in the hand. And also varies by gender. For example, black men have a high uh, risk prevalence of hip away, but not black women. So the exact reason still we don't know. And uh, we also found that the OA prevalence among the Chinese are different from that among the Caucasians in the United States. For example, knee osteoarthritis in Chinese women are 40% higher than white women in the United States. But no difference in the knee osteoarthritis was found between men in Chinese compared with the Caucasians in the United States. The, we also found that the hand osteoarthritis among Chinese is much less compared with the Caucasians in the United States, similar to that observed among African-Americans and whites. Interestingly, that hip osteoarthritis in China, in Chinese population is very rare compared to the Caucasians in the United States. In fact, many years ago, I think that's in the late 1990s, we conducted a study in Beijing, uh, osteoarthritis in China. We originally planned to recruit 2,500 res residents in Beijing. After we recruited approximately 1,500 uh, residents in Beijing and obtained their hip radiographs, we only find 15 cases of radiographic hip osteoarthritis, seven in men and eight in women. And th there was no case of symptomatic hip osteoarthritis in a Chinese man and only one case in a Chinese woman. So the prevalence of hip osteoarthritis in Chinese was 80% lower compared with the Caucasians. Because of extremely low prevalence of hip osteoarthritis in Chinese population, we stopped taking hip radiographs for the rest of 1,000 study subjects. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fa it's fascinating. And obviously those differences are very insightful. What, we, what I might do now is just try and dig in a little bit further as to why there might be differences in prevalence between those different races, because I know you've been instrumental in looking at why uh, different races might have different prevalences of osteoarthritis, both for knee, hip, but also potentially for hand osteoarthritis. So I'm just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, find the reasons for the racial disparity in prevalence of osteoarthritis is really challenging because osteoarthritis is a complex disease. Scientific evidence is growing for the roles of both systematic factors, such as genetics, dietary intake, and the bone density, and also the local biomechanical factors such as muscle weakness, obesity, and a joint injury. To my knowledge, the exact reasons for the difference in prevalence of osteoarthritis between racial ethnic groups are still not fully understood. To date, several explanations have been postulated, including genetic factors, anthropometric factors, lifestyle, and environmental factors. Let me comment a few of them. For example, a prevalence of overweight and obesity is much higher among African-Americans than that among Caucasians. 
we all know that overweight and obesity is one of the strongest risk factors for knee osteoarthritis. So this might partly explain why the prevalence of knee osteoarthritis among African Americans are higher than that among Caucasians. Another interesting finding is that lifestyle factors, or I would call borrowed from occupational epidemiology studies. Many studies have reported that occupational activities requiring squatting position increase the risk of knee osteoarthritis. And so based on these findings in the Beijing osteoarthritis, we ask participants their squatting uh, activity. And we found that the squatting was very common among the Chinese in Beijing. And approximately 40% of men and 70% of women in Beijing reported squatting more than an hour per day at age 25, which is very, I, I saw very rare in United States people squatting. And compared with those who squatting say less than 30 minutes per day at age 25, the prevalence of radiographic knee osteoarthritis was doubled among subjects who squatted two to three hours per day at age 25 years old, which is very common actually squatting two to three hours per day in China. We found that a prolonged squatting accounts for a substantial proportion of a difference in prevalence of knee osteoarthritis between Chinese in Beijing and Caucasians in the United States. So that suggests that uh, the high prevalence of knee osteoarthritis, especially in the women, probably partly are due to their squatting activity. And also another interesting we found is that we know that knee osteoarthritis can affect lateral compartment, also uh, can affect the media compartment. But the media compartment NEOA is more common than lateral compartment. Then we looked at the difference of prevalence in different compartments of knee osteoarthritis. We found that uh, even though the lateral compartment of knee osteoarthritis is not as common as medial compartment OA, but Chinese women have much higher prevalence of lateral compartment knee OA than the Caucasian women. And then we also found that, that uh, actually they have a more vigorous uh, malalignment than the Caucasian women. Just to clarify, uh, that valgus is not made. Yeah, not, so like an X-ray shape, right? Yeah. Okay, so th that also suggests that, uh, I, I don't know whether or not a vagus uh, knee is due to genetic or is due to other reasons. It is uh, not very clear, but at least we show that there's a different pattern of joint compartment affected among the different racial groups. And we also look at uh, two large uh, studies conducted in the United States. One is a multi-center osteoarthritis study, analysis osteoarthritis initiative. We compared the risk factors profile uh, between the African-Americans and uh, Caucasians. And we found that although African-Americans were more likely to have knee osteoarthritis than Caucasians, but their prevalence of knee osteoarthritis at the lateral compartment 
also higher than among the Caucasian uh, women. Whereas the, the difference in the media compartment EOA between two racial groups is much, much smaller, suggesting that uh, two different racial groups maybe have a different, they need uh, knee alignment, they might have a different anatomic structure, which makes them to more likely to get specific compartment osteoarthritis. So I think all those factors suggest that some anthropometric features, such as knee alignment, may be different among different racial ethnic populations, which make them more susceptible or less susceptible to some specific osteoarthritis. Yeah, so I think just expanding on that a little bit further, particularly as it relates to hip osteoarthritis and the relative non-existence of symptomatic hip osteoarthritis in Beijing, there are important differences in shape between uh, Caucasian hips and, and those that you found in Beijing. But moving, moving on from that and looking a little bit further into something that's you know, truly fascinating is that African-Americans in particular appear to report greater pain and activity limitations than Caucasians. So whilst there might be differences in the prevalence of radiographic disease, there's also marked differences in the reporting of symptoms between different racial groups. What might some of the reasons be for those differences in reporting of symptoms? Uh, before we go to symptoms, I also want to make another comment is that as I mentioned before, that Chinese women have much less hip OA than the Caucasian women. So we did a study to measure the hip morphological features among Chinese and Caucasians and compare the difference in these measurements. We found several differences in hip morphological between Chinese women and the Caucasian women. Hips among Chinese women are shallow or less covered and more spherical than those among Caucasian women. And the shallow acetabulum and the more spherical femoral head may protect Chinese women against hip osteoarthritis. In terms of uh, the symptoms and, um, uh, and the functions uh, between the different racial groups, and this is also a very complicated issue. Yes, uh, numerous studies have shown that African-Americans reporting greater pain and activity limitation than Caucasians. However, underlying factors are not well understood. Several hypotheses have been postulated, and some of them have been examined. And we all know that pain is a subjective experience. Various factors such as genetic predisposition, psychological factors, prior experience, social cultural environment, as well structural lesions, all play uh, roles in subjects' response to painful stimuli. Identify the, the risk factors that would um, represent an important first step towards reducing disparities, particularly if those factors were responsive to intervention. So I think there's uh, many differences in terms of these risk factors uh, between the different uh, racial ethnic groups. For example, in a study conducted among patients with knee or hip osteoarthritis in the United States, the investigators find that African-Americans had a worse pain and a function score on pain and a function than Caucasians. However, after taking into account of several psychological factors into consideration, for example, arthritis self-efficacy, 
affect that is a mood and the level of tension, emotion, focus of coping, as well as self-reported poor health status, there was no difference in pain and the function score between two racial groups. So these findings provide empirical evidence that self-management and the psychological intervention can influence these factors and the great dissemination among African-Americans may be a key step toward reducing racial disparity in pain and uh, function. And another interesting is uh, social environmental factors such as poverty might also play important roles in difference in pain and function between uh, different racial ethnic groups. For example, in, in a study conducted in Canada, the investigators find that non-Hispanic Black not only reported a higher prevalence of knee pain and a poor physical function than the non-Hispanic White, but also had a much higher percentage of living below the poverty line. For example, more than half of non-Hispanic Black were living under poverty line, but only less than a quarter of non-Hispanic white were living below the poverty line. So they looked at action between poverty and the race in relation to pain and the function. They found that the poverty line significantly affected the difference in pain and the function between two racial groups. Non-Hispanic white living above the poverty line experienced the least severe knee pain and the best physical function, while non-Hispanic black living below the poverty line experienced the most severe knee pain and the poorest physical function. So these results further emphasize the importance of social economic status in studies of pain and the physical function between the racial and the ethnic disparities. So improve the African-Americans, their social economic status is very important uh, to reduce the disparities in terms of uh, pain and the function among them. It's a really good explanation. I, I think it's a really complicated area that obviously uh, looks at the, the interplay between those socioeconomic factors, psychological factors, and uh, potential areas around sensitivity of pain. So in addition to differences in reporting of symptoms, there also appears to be important disparities in rates and outcomes from surgical interventions like total joint replacement. I'm just wondering if you could help us to understand a little bit around why that might be the case. Uh, yes, um, several studies have shown that uh, even osteoarthritis is more common among African-American than whites the rate of total knee replacement surgical procedure is much lower than whites. And many factors may contribute to this disparity. And this includes demographics, social economic status, patient knowledge, patient preference, willingness to undergo total joint replacement, patient expectation of post-anthroplasty outcome, religions, spirituality, and physician-patient interaction. For example, one study analyzed a Medicare database in the United States found that compared with Caucasians, other racial ethnic groups, that is black, 
Hispanic, Asian, Native American, and a mixed race population had a significantly lower rates of total knee replacement therapy. For example, for every 1,000 population per year, the total knee replacement therapy was 4.7 among whites, 3.9 among black, 3.7 among Hispanic, 3.9 among Asian, 4.4 among Native American, and 3.7 among mixed race population. In addition, lower rates of total knee replacement therapy utilization for blacks, Hispanics, and the mixed race groups become worse over the years because that study looked at uh, several ethnic groups over eight years, and they found the patients from minority groups were less likely to undergo total knee replacement therapy in high volume hospitals than were whites because in general, high volume hospitals, I think their outcome is better than lower volume hospitals. And also the rates of mortality after the surgery were much higher among the minority groups. For example, it was 50% higher for blacks, 6.5 fold higher for Native Americans, and 4.3 fold higher among mixed race patients after surgery compared to the Caucasians. And this finding is also demonstrated minority had lower rates of total knee replacement utilization, higher rates of adverse health outcomes associated with the procedure. So even adjusting for patient-related and healthcare system-related characteristics. So they not only have a higher prevalence of osteoarthritis, but they have a lower utilization of knee replacement therapy. After the knee replacement therapy, they have a worse outcome for example, higher mortality and also adverse procedure outcomes. That's really important information. Obviously, as we're thinking about the distribution allocation of healthcare, really important factors to consider because as you say, if there's a higher prevalence and higher symptoms, but less allocation of important interventions and poorer outcomes from those interventions, there's important problems that ultimately we need to address. Now, Are there any patient-friendly resources or links that you might like to share that might shed further light on this topic or anything that I haven't asked about the topic of how race contributes to osteoarthritis and its care that I should have asked about that I didn't? I also, I give another interesting finding is that in Canada, the big study showed that when the minority people have a surgery, before the surgery, they have a much poor sort of a trajectory of physical function. And in general, they have a much worse sort of a pain, much worse function before the surgery. But after surgery, they also have a poor pain improvement, poor function improvement. Even you're adjusting for pain and function prior to surgery, there's still a difference in terms of improvement after surgery. So uh, this suggests that we probably should educate the minority that they probably needed to seek their health care much earlier and in order to get a much better outcome. I think in terms of information about osteoarthritis in the United States, there are two patient-friendly resources I think people can take a look and get some information. 
And I think other people in other countries can also look at this. One is a National Institute of Arthritis and Muscular and Skin Diseases, NIMES website. And they have a health topics A to Z. If you look at osteoarthritis, you can get a lot of information which directly to the patients. Another uh, resource is Arthritis Foundation website. They also provide a lot of useful information for osteoarthritis patients. That's really helpful, Yuching, and I think, as I agree with you, there's a lot of important information that we can share with people there. Now, in the in the latter part of the show, I usually just try to get to know you a little bit better again. Um, and what I might do is just go through some of the questions. But if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you focus on? I, I think the most important thing uh, right now, I think even though arthritis is a very common disease, but we probably know the two most important risk factors, one is obesity, one is injury. One important thing I think we can do is to disseminate sound scientific information to the public. Especially nowadays, people can get various information from the internet and some of the information are not based on the solid scientific evidence. If we can properly use new media and disseminate those useful information, which is, I think it's very, very helpful from reliable, solid resources and to educate the public. I think that I would think that the dissemination of solid and correct information to the public is very, very important. Completely agree with you. And I think there's a, a much, much more important role that we haven't played yet around advocacy and public relations and public awareness, particularly as it relates to the important public health implications of being above a healthy body weight and joint injury as it relates to osteoarthritis. Because that whole primary prevention area is something that you've worked on a lot before in terms of epidemiologic modeling and others have, have looked at the opportunity, but we really haven't done a lot about it as yet and a lot more that we can do. Now, one of the important things I really like to learn about different people that I speak to is why they do what they do. And you've been contributing massively to this particular area of expertise to a whole lot of people around the world in terms of their knowledge as it relates to osteoarthritis. But what, what's your inner motivation? What makes you tick? And osteoarthritis is already a common disease, especially as population aging, you know, epidemic of overweight and obesity, I think it will have a more formidable impact on the society. There are many challenges to prevent and cure this disease. I really think that I, I would like to work with uh, other investigators so we can work together to develop more efficient and effective strategies to control these diseases, uh, especially when there's uh, more and more people get older and the percentage of our elderly population gets bigger and bigger. They work so hard for their life, they should enjoy their life. But um, a lot of people get osteoarthritis, which limited their activity. So I like to work with my colleagues to, uh, to develop and uh, find good approaches to prevent this disease. So let those elderly enjoy their, their, their life. Sounds, sounds like you're a friendly altruist, if I, if I had to submit that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? I would say there's always a hope. Okay. 
there is always a hope. A hope is associated with many good positive outcomes, including greater happiness, better health status, and even longevity. So it, it is not only a necessary ingredient for getting through tough times, some, something like that. I, I think we'll control, for example, nowadays COVID-19, I think we'll control, for it, control this disease. But also, I think it's a great power for us to reach our goals. So always think about positively. Always think there is always a hope. That's my attitude towards life. Yeah, and no, I think you've been very good at helping others around with your eternally optimistic manner. Uh, I think having, having hope and having optimism is so important to do what we do. Now, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give in passing for people out there with osteoarthritis? For osteoarthritis patients, I think most important, even though we still, still do a lot of research work, I think the most important advice I will give is keep your weight under control. So the overweight obesity is the strongest risk factors for obesity, for, for the osteoarthritis, also for other diseases. So for the people, you know, I would say if you are overweight or obese, reduce your weight. If you are not, keep your weight under control. That's my advice. And it's really, really important advice um, for those people who are out there who are above a healthy weight. And if, if they're looking for more information, we do obviously have a couple of different podcasts. One that we did with Steve Messier about the importance of weight for osteoarthritis and one more recently uh, with Rosie Vinman about uh, implementing a diet and how, how people might go about that. So if, you, if you're out there and you fit that description um, then please have a listen to that because I think there's some very helpful resources there. Now, Yu Ching, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to chat with you. It's been a while since I've had a chance to spend time with you face-to-face, but obviously looking forward to doing that again sometime soon. And again, my sincere appreciation for everything you've done throughout my career for all the help you've given me and obviously our ongoing collaboration and really looking forward to, uh, to that continuing. And I just want to wish you well and tell you to look after yourself. Thank you, David. Keep in mind, there's a hope. Always have a hope. (laughs) (laughs) That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, Please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong. Music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips. For just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.